Kia ora, and welcome to The Word, or Kupu, with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Today, on the 20th of October, 2021, for episode number five, today's guest was the brilliant Celia Litvin. Celia is a trained psychologist who is currently completing her PhD at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich at the LMU. She's also the founder of this genius company called PsychApps that specializes in creating online tools and applications in the mental health sector. Um, two of her apps are called EQ and then EQ, the next generation, which we talk about in the podcast. Celia is a super lovely woman. Her and I have a very similar background, having been born and raised in Europe, born and initially raised in Europe, and then moving to the US and then coming back. And yeah, she's just a joy to talk to. And the fact that she made time for us to talk to us with having one-year-old twins is just a miracle. And we are so blessed. And she's even said she's going to come back. But for now, you can enjoy an hour of genius that is Celia. So let's welcome her to the show. Thanks for listening. So I was going to ask Celia, um, how's it going with your kids? It is uh, a whirlwind of chaos, joy, exhaustment, and um, just busyness. To be absolutely honest, like yeah. it's um, your your life isn't yours anymore, which in in a way no. is beautiful. On the other hand, you know, I'd like to just kind of sit down and just read a book or just kind of like stare into the air for half an hour. <laughs> that would be lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say you've got. With you being late for the podcast, I was like, you have every excuse in the book, having not only a, a little child, but having two of them. So and, yours is and, like double the work. And, you know, because because I work, like every second with the kids is, is precious. So I try not to yeah. actually schedule things that are within my time with them. Um, because I, I found this, this Haarbreite, how would you say that in English? This, um, yeah. This tiny little window of opportunity of, of of balance i would say where i i feel all right like i'm not um underserving my startup and i'm not like neglecting my kids and it's it's very like five minutes can actually tip that right so um i that's why i was wow. at the last minute because of yeah of course and um, so how do you not a scale. <laughs> my my, I have a very strong inner timer, and um, it gets so. For example, I stop working at four thirty, which at a startup is outrageous. You know, that's when you kind of like you know you're have a lunch break normally, right? Um, but I have an amazing yeah. co-founder who carries the weight for for me, and specifically came in because uh, I was having a twins, <clears throat> and I'm I'm absolutely amazing. fine until about like. 4:25, and then I start getting a bit fidgety. And at 4:35, I'm already like, "Get out of my face! Let me turn off my computer. I need to get to my babies." <clears throat> Excuse me. So, how, working from home, or are you do you go into an office every yes. day? No, no. Um, I mean, COVID made it practically impossible, yeah. and we figured that we're all absolutely happy with remote work, and we meet once a week um, in in person. Or most of the team because we have you yeah. know, people in Kenya and people in um, Beirut. Um, so the the UK based meet once a week and the rest of the time it's home office. Ah, uh, nice. Before we get into that, I want to I've given a bit of a background on you, but I kind of like asking the guests mm-hmm. to give like the origin story, whatever that is. You know, like your Marvel superhero character. You've got okay. a life Celia you've lived in a lot of places and like me you were I think born and initially raised and moved to the states is that right 
Yeah, so I was born in Germany, but when I was two, we moved to Southern California. And we yeah. stayed there until I was um, 12. Then we moved to Luxembourg for two years, and then we moved to Germany, where I stayed until 2013. And then I moved 2013 to London. Right, but so you then, because I think you did yeah. your master, didn't you? You did animal. Yes, yes, exactly. And um, yes, absolutely. I'm actually still um, enrolled at the uh, LMU because um, I'm a PG candidate. So um, it's, it's yeah. kind of like Munich is, I think I would say the closest I could consider to a, a home base, even though I'm not actually contemplating going back. But I have been heavily influenced by German culture and by Munich culture. And, and so Christopher, you're from Munich originally as well, right? That is so yeah, funny, um, I wouldn't have guessed. I know, I know. Well, I, so I also was born, and then we moved to New Jersey, six months old, and then we moved to Brooklyn, oh, wow. five. And then when I was like eight, we moved to Munich, and then I did school in Munich, <clears throat> school there. So, yeah, we would have probably frequented the same place at some point in time, so yeah. Munich isn't that I'm big a place. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. No. So, <laughs> it's the largest village in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So did you English first, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, and then you did German when you moved from Luxembourg, or did you learn it in Luxembourg? Um, it started learning in Luxembourg, but then along with French. Um, and then I completely yeah. lost my fr French when we moved to Germany and... Um, so we lived in a tiny town in the middle of Germany um, near Cologne. Um, and then I said, I'm going to move into the big city world. So I moved to Munich. <laughs> Amazing. So you're now bilingual, I guess. Used to be trilingual, now bilingual. Yes, exactly. And I have to say my German is getting worse and worse by, by the month. Um, so when I speak to my family... What Germany, are you talking about? It, it's Dude. like... Yeah, but your in PhD English, is in German. Of, oh, is no, it in English? PhD okay, is in English. So there's a cover letter in in German, but the whole the whole thing is in English. Like wow, most of okay, the research awesome. On German universities is in English, which is a bit sad in a way, but then it gives you international opportunities, right? Yeah, of course. Um, would have you been able to do it? in <laughs> that's my biggest nightmare: is imagining going to university in Germany. <laughs> um, no, I don't think I would have even had the option. I would have probably written it in German and then had it translated if I'd had, had to do it. In, um, yeah. Yeah. Your, your master's, was that also in English then? Um, yes. Yes. All the big papers are English. Sure. As well, they're in... Um, I, I, no, the lectures are in German, but most of the pieces that we study uh, and the books are in English. Okay. Yeah, and you're, you're and really, you also, really screwed got, if you don't speak English. Or and then oh, you wouldn't oh, understand anything. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, so when you, because um, you also got a university college, London. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so because research I fellow. am not Exactly. So because I am um, not based in Munich anymore, if you want to have participants and if you need like to put your ethics committee and everything and um, you, you need to speak to your supervisor and professors and everything, it, it is a bit far um, and it's not the same. You don't you know, you can't have access to the library and things like that. So um, I uh, applied for UCL and um, now I'm honorary um, research fellow. So it, it means that I'm not being paid to be a research fellow, but I have like all of the um, uh, privileges and perks exactly. Yeah. And I can do my studies there. And it went through the, um, like my, my clinical trials with the ethic committees of UCL and things like that. Uh, you also get grants and things like obviously. University of London, is that um, right? Yep. Yeah, probably, but so, grants in in himself are a nightmare. So I don't even go down that route. To apply for, yeah. So your yes. master was in clinical psychology, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And then you did that at LMU whilst you were still living in London, is that right? And you were just traveling there and back? No, like, no, I actually, I finished my uh, master's and um, then was like, I'm out of here um, long enough in Munich. And then I moved to London, but I started my, my PhD process from London, not in Munich. Okay. And that was a couple of years back, wasn't it? Like five, six years. You're like the never-ending hey, PhD I candidate. Counting. <laughs> I was counting. Like, should I address her as Dr. Litvin or no? Nah, it's a PhD no. candidate. So it's said the same thing. Let's not talk about my PhD. But um, interestingly yeah, enough, yeah. the woman from she also UCL actually do coding and so she did a computer engineering degree there second Dell affiliate um oh, so the nice. interesting i think we kind of do have to talk about that because it relates to doing yeah that's yeah. a little bit you want to take us through yeah. that how do yeah i mean if you want like yeah, my, doing my... what you're doing yeah so I'll, I'll tell you like the whole origin story in a way. And I, I think you may possibly yeah. be able to relate to it a bit because you've been moving around a lot when you were, were young. And so because we were yeah. bouncing around and in a way the American and German culture or Luxembourgish culture is not that different. It's all considered Western. I'm doing little air quotes, but it, it is actually very different. And, you know, there's a underlying tones and things like that. Um, and so when we moved back to Europe, I, I felt that like life was very chaotic and unforeseeable and I didn't understand why people did and felt and said the things they did and it, it, I felt very vulnerable. And when my sister had her 15th birthday, she's three and a half years older than me, she got a book for body language. And I remember opening that book and my mind being blown that there was a science that would help you understand why people did the things they did, felt the things, including myself. And so I was 12 years old and I said, I'm going to be a psychologist. And I, I think I'm one of the very lucky people who the more they learn about the subject of choice, the more they love it and the more interesting they find it. And so um, I was, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be a psychologist and everything. But when I was um, 18, I was in Cologne, I was shopping, and I was scouted for a model agency. And um, I think for most or many young girls, um, you know, the idea of, um, you know, being considered a model and being able to travel the world and make lots of money was, you know, was just overwhelmingly attractive. So I'm like, okay, I'm still going to study psychology, but not quite yet. Let me travel the world and have fun. So I did that for 17 years. And then towards the end of my modeling career, I said, you know, this isn't going to last forever um, and for multiple reasons, but also because, you know, it's not very intellectually stimulating. <laughs> like one photographer, he told me once, like, you're the model. I'm not asking you to do things. I'm telling you to do things or I'm not asking you for your opinions. I'm telling you to do things. I'm like, OK, so I said, OK, I'm going to finally do what I love to do. I'm going to study psychology. So the last couple of years of my um, uh, career, I was studying. And the, another reason why it took so long. And when you study psychology, you learn all about diagnostics and symptoms and treatment, but you don't learn about the healthcare system, right? So I just assumed that anybody who needed or wanted to see a psychiatrist or psychologist could easily do so. And when I moved to London right after my master's, I was working for the NHS, the national health system here, which is free healthcare for all the kind of like foundational physical and mental needs. So, you know, if you have an accident or you have cancer or something like that, you get treated for free. If it's something a little bit more complicated, then sometimes you have to add, you pay for yourself or you're referred or things like that. And they have healthcare as well, mental healthcare as well. But the waiting times are very, very long. So I was working in a priory for the national health system. And I was talking to, um, or I was I was taking the health assessment of a young girl um, together with um, a more senior psychologist. And she was there with her family. She was about 17 years old for an eating disorder. She was tall, gorgeous, 
good at school. Her whole family was there to support her. She was living in a good area in London. And yet you could tell she was like barely hanging in there. And her first symptoms emerged when she was like 14. So she had been experiencing symptoms of eating disorders for three years. And then she had been on the wait list to be seen by us for half a year. And that just blew my mind. And when I looked a little bit at the data, about only 35% of the people that are actively seeking mental health care receive the mental health care that they need. And, and that was just crazy to me. So even if I worked myself to the bone without lunch breaks and late into the night, I couldn't you know, even scratch the surface. So at the time I was looking into um, my, my um, PhD and what exactly to write. And I was very interested with digital therapeutics and there was a lot of emerging research that computer-based therapy was as good as face-to-face -face therapy or pharmaceuticals for a certain for a certain group of people that you know were receptive to this kind of therapy. And at the time, this was 2016, about people were moving away from the laptop to applications and smartphones for their personal use. So I thought, what happens if we take the learnings that we have from the desktop and computer-based therapies and we turn it into an app? And if you went to the app store at that time, you put in depression, you'd get like 50 hits max, right? And, and none of them were evidence-based. So I went and I pitched it to my professor at LMU and said, um, I would like for my PhD, not just to do research about digital therapeutics, I want to make but an application. And I'm very lucky because I have one of the kind of like hip, <laughs> innovative, fun um, uh, professors at the university as my supervisor. And he's like, you know what? This sounds amazing. Um, give it a go. Let's see if you can do it. <laughs> so 20 years later, I'm still working on it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we developed, or um, my, my dad is a developer. So um, together we developed our first application and we did a two-arm randomized control trial over four weeks with about 250 participants and could prove that using our app over four weeks significantly lowered depression and anxiety levels up to the level of a beta blocker, which is, a, is an antidepressant. And so I thought, okay, great. I'm going to save the world from depression and anxiety for like $9.99 so anybody can afford it. Um, but the world did not want to be saved that way. So the problem with digital therapeutics is that people just don't stick to them long enough for them to actually have an effect. So the American Psychology Association says on average, people spend two minutes on a mental health app and then they jump off for multi, multi, um, for various reasons. Most of them being that, you know, if you, as an academic researcher, design a product, you know very well the clinical effect you know, the, the, the um, therapeutic interventions that you need to apply, but you're not, you know, you don't do any usability testings and mostly you're very poorly funded. And we need to kind of like meet the user there where they are most likely to be found. Plus the population of people struggling with anxiety and depression have symptoms that make it even harder for them to adhere to, uh, to therapy like lack of motivation, lack of drive, curiosity, um, cognitive impairment, right? So if you're too depressed to get up and take a shower, you're not going to have the energy motivation drive to be able to do your self-help therapy on your app. And then I thought, how can we get the brain to help people stick to what's good for them? And I'm personally interested in a very young population because this is when the first symptoms emerge and because they have the most life challenges. So anywhere between um, 18 and 25, if you're going to have a depression, the first symptoms are probably going to emerge during this window. Um, plus, you know, you're, you're going off to university or to have your first job, first children, first proper relationship. There's so much going on. And this is the latest when we should have the psychological skills to be able to deal with everything. So I said, what is this population of young adults doing? And 70% of them are casual gamers. So let's take the know-how of the gaming industry that is like 20 years ahead in psychology anyway, because they want our money and use it in an ethically beneficial way for people's mental health. And that's exactly what we're doing at PsyCaps.
uh, when you did that initial randomized control trial, what was the age cohort that you used when you did the first one? Um, the first one was um, absolutely random. So on average, the average age was 33 years old. So we didn't have a, yeah. a cutoff rate. Um, our uh, latest clinical trial with UCL, the average age is 24 years old. Okay, so you are targeting that. Yes. Generation Z, the gamer. Yeah, Generation so you, um, Z and even Alpha now. Is it called Alpha now? What's Alpha? Born after 2000 and... Uh, 2001, I think. Yeah, but don't... don't All uh, right. Don't, on that. I would... don't quote you on record now saying... No, oh, no! <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, you then... So, game and the storyline. Yeah. It was the... Developers are up about finding people to help you design your story for your apps. Or am so, I jumping forward? So a bit? once I realized that no no absolutely not. So so once I realized that a normal application with like your little work modules and your exercises and everything isn't gonna cut it, um I looked into gamification and I, I spoke to multiple, multiple app developers but ended up being introduced to a game development company. And I think that is really what makes a difference. So the difference between gamification and gamifying is that gamification is using elements of games and kind of like, I'm just kind of like exaggerate a little slapping that on top of your product to make people a little bit more motivated, add a little bit, you know, pinch of fun into it. What we're doing is gamifying, which means that we are designing the game and slapping the mental health into the game, right? So it is okay. a, a proper interactive choose your adventure game that was designed and developed by a game development company in Los Angeles called Collision Studios that worked on games like The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Barbie, like Scrabble, you name it. Yeah. How did you go about designing the actual storyline? So um, I, I was thinking like, what, what would be the most important things to teach? And if you look at mental health as a sliding scale between people who on one hand are very well adjusted and, you know, mentally healthy, and on the other hand, um, on the other end of the scale, people who that we lose to suicide. I would say our target audience is very much at the beginning of the scale. So we are looking at people who are interested in personal development, who are in vulnerable situations, and right now during COVID, who isn't, and people who are experiencing first yeah. symptoms of depression and anxiety. So we're, we're not yet heavy therapy. And for that, yeah. we need to use psychological skills and treatments that could be to build resilience, but also treat low-level depression and anxiety. So most of the skills that we teach in the game are from cognitive behavioral therapy, positive psychology, and systemic therapy. And we need to kind of like weave them into the game. So what happens in the game is that you learn the skill, you practice it in kind of like a mental health dojo, and then it, you once you've um, mastered that, it releases you into a story where you have to use the skills to be able to level up and collect gems. And we yeah. did the first version of the game. We did focus groups and we said like, what kind of stories are you interested in? And then we came up with five stories that the people were interested in. So one was a, um, like a sword and uh, sorcery story. Then we had a love story, an office story, a family visit story and a um, like a war wartime story. And you would learn yeah. psychological skills and then go through that story. And the second generation was built by using. So we've have had over half a million downloads internationally now. And we all the people oh. that are interested in getting more in, information, they signed up for um, a, like a newsletter to see when the next generation would go live. And we've asked them what kind of stories are they most interested in and had like 15 different stories 
written up by Marvel and DC comic writer Ari Kaplan. And then we just kind of allow wow. people who are using the game to choose the storylines. So and this is, what's this game? What's the app called? It's called Kill, EQ. Right? Yes, exactly. EQ. So E-Q-U-O-O. And then um, the, the one that's currently is, it's called the next generation. So it's EQ, the emotional fitness game was the first one. And it was a five week course. And now we have over a year of content and um, multiple chapters and um, wow. like in-app games and things like that. So it's, it's, it's really matured over time with help of our and this users, uh, sorry, our players. Getting feedback and everything. Is that EQ? Is it a separate app? It's called EQ, the next generation, but it is a separate app. Okay. It is a separate app. So if you went to and have you launched any put Yes, 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 absolutely. We've we've gone a little bit away from um, business to consumer, so we, we're not pushing it so much to the actual the individual player and we're now speaking with corporates and um we're trying to use corporates to distribute it to their employees for free so that the end user doesn't have to pay for it we we would like so that the financial weight is being carried by employers and by institutions yeah so I, the first thing i thought when you're talking about how to keep people you know you're obviously Anyone who's ever gone through depression, actually, to put your clothes on or to have a shower or to make a meal, and often mm -hmm. you know, realities tie in very strongly with mental health. And the mm -hmm. first thing that came to my mind, Celia, was that there has to be economic incentive. And I was then thinking, if you could bring these apps into a corporation, monetize. You know, you get rewarded by playing the game. And if you could somehow the NHL to subsidize it, and it's like a form of, you know, how people get their um, benefit, and it could be tied in. You play this app, you reward it over and above the benefit that you already get, so that there is a final keep people psychologically sound. It's... New Zealand at the moment, Celia. Yep. So the last guest I had on, she was also a psychologist, and she works with. Um, she's going to be really interested, actually, hearing about what you're doing, because she works with Insurance, which is like the commercialization platform of Victoria University, which is Wellington University, and she works in the psychology sector. And I was based. I was talking to her about AI and how we can somehow leverage. AI into online counseling and um, and she was saying the government has so much money. It just seemed to projects willy nilly. Yeah. Money as well, but in a way, if you have an angel like the government or the NHS saying like this and we'll add a financial incentive for real gems. Is that, is that? Yes, so, no, no, that's not crazy at all. So um, I was thinking, you know, you may have heard of Sweatcoin. Have you heard of Sweatcoin? Is that Bitcoin? Is that um, cryptocurrency? No, Sweatcoin, um, yeah, it's, it's a type of, of currency, but it's, it's, I don't think it's crypto quite yet. But I'm not 100% sure. So maybe they've developed it since I first heard about it. But practically, if you do yeah. enough steps and you check into your gym and you eat healthy and you can prove it through the application, you collect coins and you can actually spend it for their partners. Like you can get a pair of Nike shoes or you can get like a yoga mat or you can go to like a spa that you want to. So it really ha it has real life attractive <laughs> things and people get really, you know, really motivated, incentivized by that. Um, and uh, one of our one of our original ideas was, you know, um, mental health has a huge impact on um, your well-being, your physical well-being, 
and it, it's now one of the biggest payout factors, um, like second or third to cancer for insurance companies. So if you played EQ on a regular basis, that you would get coins and it would deduct from your premium and things like that. But these are all things we're thinking of. Wow. Um, yeah. I think we have to be a little bit careful about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So I would, at the right now where we are, would prefer to spend our money in making the game so sticky that you don't have to be paid to play it. You know, you just go like, ooh, the yeah. next, you know, the next level is up. And so um, what what kind of a, a Netflix show are you watching right now? Uh, well, you're putting me on the spot. I'm watching right now. <laughs> I'm re-watching Enthusiasm because the next season is coming up. So it's probably a boring one. Okay, why? So and why do I watch Ask me. So... If no, no, if you're watching like Curb Your Enthusiasm, you're really loving it, and all of a sudden someone comes along and says, For every episode that you watch, I'm going to give you like 200 pounds. I'm just making an example, right? Then yeah. you will notice over time that you start watching it for the money and less for the enjoyment. And if the money then, for whatever wow, reason, drops what? off, you very likely to drop the, the thing, right? So, yeah, by adding an external layer, it yeah. just it's sometimes overpowering. And so it's something to be considered and we would definitely test it. Um, but yeah. maybe for a non-gamified mo module, so because not everybody likes to play games, right? So if you don't like playing games no. and you need to stick to mental health product, then incentivizing it could be something that would be worth looking into. Yeah, it's a little bit like like slowly losing interest in the sport that they loved so much when they weren't. Yes, exactly. A lot with pro players that start to see it as a... Yes. Um, so I was going to ask you, intrinsic and intrinsic, right? Yes. Yeah. Is, um, and... Intrinsic motivator, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would be so an in intrinsic motivator? Anything that you derive personal pleasure or joy from is an intrinsic motivator. So um, yeah. if you find yourself knitting, for example, and you just love to knit and you like, you like the meditative and the clicking and the clacking and what you're developing, everything, you just find a quite content joy in it. That's intrinsic motivation. And then someone comes along and says, oh, I'm going to buy your scarf for something like that. That would be extrinsic motivator or if you do it because you know that your partner loves to see you knit and so you're doing it for them that's also intrinsic so it doesn't always have to be money but it's anything that isn't that gamblers generating oh that's uh it's i don't think it's so much motivation but more about um uh, addiction and um rewards so there with rewards yeah. It's called intermittent awards, if I remember correctly. I studied that a long time yeah. ago. But it's the fact that you get your reward in an unforeseeable pattern. And so when you do get yeah. the reward, um, it it completely like depletes your dopamine center. And you want that hit gotcha. again. And you never know when you're going to get it. So that that's that's what gets the cycle addictive. And this is also a little bit gotcha. It's the main part of, of gambling. That intermittent, if the, if a gambler would win every bet he played, they wouldn't. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. they might do it just you know, to collect money, but it would, yeah. The hit wouldn't be the same <laughs> that they get dopamine. Yes. Right? Um, in terms of how, I mean, this might go a little bit further out there, but you were talking about you know, building a games and could be reactive. You know, there's like a lot of things like this. So this um, woman, she's working with companies in the States on analyzing vocal patterns and being able to the depression you are purely from the timbre and the mm -hmm. pitch of your voice. And you know how they now also have, they can... Um, movements of the face 
ties into that book you read from about body language like mm -hmm. they when you look at mm -hmm. the pupil dilation and is there anything that you would be considering in the future connecting your game and apps with a more responsive technology within where the game suddenly goes okay i think we might can't say that right so oh, but i suppose yes. you say your target it's not the yeah yeah okay i see well no 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 so theoretically i would like everybody in the world to be able to play eq no matter where they are in the mental health um sliding scale right and we have an interactive chatbot in the game right now that's um it, it's loosely machine learning it's definitely not ai um but it's it's getting there right and it asks yeah. clinical questionnaires and gives the people feed time, uh, feedback real time about their um, anxiety, depression, resilience, interpersonal uh, relationship skills, and personal growth skills. And anybody yeah. who is flagged moderate or high gets triaged to services that are more equipped to treat them than the game. So, um, within the game, within the game, yes. So we oh, triage to. Amazing the NHS to private system or to an EAP and employee assistant program, depending on who, who the player is. Um, so we, we don't want to just say, yeah. Oh, it looks like you're highly depressed and you know, you're not feeling well and everything like, bye. <laughs> so this is, no. this is important. And we definitely want to use AI in the future for kind of like, um, cluster analysis and, and predictions and things like that. So, one of the things that I, I would love us to see is to find unlikely connections. So let's say, for example, men between 25 and 28 are likely or most likely to have an accident at 5 p.m. in the afternoon for various reasons. They're leaving um, uh, work. They're, you know, uh, frustrated from work. They're um, tired and a, a little bit aggressive from anxiety and things like that. And then they don't drive as carefully as what maybe they're also tired and then boom accident right so we yeah. could protect probably if we predicted something like that send a notification at 4 25 and say hey bob um uh this is the time when it's most important for you to do a quick breathing exercise play a level of the game and remember to um not generalize for example something like that and that yeah. could be the difference yeah. between someone going out on the road and getting road rage and having an accident and someone going like, oh, yeah, OK, I, I know what to do to kind of get rid of this excess energy that's not helping me. Yeah. So what did you call that again, Celia? Um, uh, cluster analysis and um, prediction. Cluster analysis. Yeah. yeah. So you're basically gathering information as well and that that's what i meant in the term that, that it's re it's reactive so are they yes. typing things in or yeah choosing from multiple choice or at the moment it's um all mul multiple choice so it's only answering there's no yeah. um like open writing but you know it's only a question of, of financing and funding you know anything is possible um it just it, yeah. give me more money and i'll make it happen yeah yeah, that was what um, Lisa McLennan was saying as well, that the, the government yeah. is really good at spending money, but yeah, people that have the right motivations is the is the tricky bit, I guess. And um, you were saying, because you've, yeah, go on. I was about to say, because the, the buddies of the people with the budgets usually aren't like psychologists and social workers, they are construction people and uh, energy people and things like that. Yeah, the stuff that makes the easy money. Mental health yeah. is such a complicated subject and so nuanced and the payoff is also not something that can be measured in money. It's just measured with an increase and happiness which is why we were so happy in new zealand when jacinda ardern decided to ditch gdp as a measure of how the economy is doing and instead introduced a wellness index which is why now instead of having money going towards massive infrastructure projects they're doing 
this shift towards infrastructure of the mind. And so at the moment, it's almost like we need someone like you, Celia, in New Zealand to step up and go, listen, I can do this. Um, this is the thing, because we, the money is there. The willingness is there. It's just yeah. at the moment we, we have a, a bottleneck in the people that are qualified to be able to bring things to market. So, I mean, what would be super interesting if things lift and COVID restrictions pass, which they eventually will, to have you come to New Zealand, I reckon, and do some consulting work. Because I, New Zealand is such a good, um, like, it's quite a homogenous little community. I mean, we've got many different cultures, but there is this Kiwi ethos that exists here. And so we're quite a good experimental yeah. country, you know, because yeah. we're also isolated. And um, yes. so... I think that could be something that we should look forward to in the future when your little twins are probably old enough to go into a trans equator flight. Yes, How do you think I, about doing that? So yeah, have oh you ever God. been down here? I've, I've never been and um, it's been on my to-do list and it's, it's a bit sad, but you know, ever since Lord of the Rings, I'm like, this is the most <laughs> beautiful country and I want to, I want to do the tour and I want to walk those mountains yeah. and, you know, swim. Amazing. Maybe dip a toe in it. It looks cold, but um, you know. Of course. So I mean, this is these are things that obviously they're going to happen in the future. And I was going to say, you mentioned Lord of the Rings. Where I live right now was where they filmed the bulk of those movies. I live in the South Island in a like no. super remote area called Golden Bay, and this ties in as well to like I've got a counselor as well and I needed counseling after COVID after our lockdown and yeah. I went through a bit of a, a a little bit of a break and um it was so hard to get counselors here because obviously we're we've got a community of 6,000 people scattered throughout this area and we've got about four counselors so they yeah. booked out for months so I went down the route of like my brother studied psychology he lives in Austria and he found me an online psychologist who has absolutely been like a major lifesaver. She's American, lives in Auckland in New Zealand. And the thing is, Celia, like it, that's something that's not, people don't realize that that is even available or an option to be taken. You know, at the moment we have these counseling, the philosophy that you have to actually be sitting in a room with someone for it to be beneficial. Whereas I was going to say, what are your views on counseling happening remotely over let's say skype or zoom and then taking that one step further and having a counselor who's not actually a human being yeah so um, yeah yeah um i think it's it's very much outdated that you have to be in the room with a psychologist now yeah. if, if there was a hierarchy of best practice i think at the end of the day sitting in front of another human being and interacting is most likely to be the most beneficial because of all the cues and everything that may get lost if you're you know on video for example yeah um, but by by a tiny margin so it's i mean uh, the effect size barely shifts um from looking at the the effect that face-to-face -face therapy has to non-face-to-face -face therapy. Um, personally, I have a theory that there's something about being in the same room with a human that goes beyond pheromones, like force fields yeah. or something like that, that we will one day discover and then will be a bit of a no-brainer that, you know, you just have to kind of like interlock energy fields or something like that. Yeah. Not, it sounds a bit outlandish, but it, feel, it feels like... No, I can understand. I think many people could relate to that. Right. But um, there are also people who don't want to sit in front of someone and feel safer if they're on the phone or if they're chatting or if, you know, they are actually speaking to a bot. So specifically, men are more likely to disclose what they really feel if they're speaking to a bot. Yeah. And I, I like to think of digital health products that aren't digital therapeutics yet like mine um as an entry drug to therapy where yeah. you say you can use it as 
am a substitute if it's impossible to get face-to-face -face therapy or video therapy. Yeah. Um, you can use it instead of if you don't want to, but it may lead to you being able to accept and reap the benefits of face-to-face -face therapy down the line, if so possible, um, by kind of like entering the world of therapy and psychology through a digital um, source. Amazing. Yeah, I like that. You s it's a gateway. It's like the gateway drug, but it's the gateway <laughs> into, because I think we are, I mean, we're generally as a population going through a massive consciousness shift at the moment, but I think mm -hmm. our attitudes towards mental health and the normalization of it's okay to not be okay is slowly but surely becoming more mainstream. And to say you're depressed or you've got anxiety is becoming something that used to be stigmatized, but now increasingly, I mean, America is eons ahead of everyone else in the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, it's normal to get a therapist. And if you don't, everyone looks at you a little bit strange. Whereas let's say in New Zealand, for a man to go and get counseling is still a big, it's a thing. Like it's, you're not living up to that stereotypical man taking care of himself and being stoic and, so there's so much work still to be done. So to have something like EQ, I was going to say lubricating, but like making it easy. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bad word. Like just making it more accessible for someone to start thinking about how they're thinking. Because that's exactly. the other thing. I mean, that's ultimately. And I have to say, I played your first, well, played. I did your first. I can, and I still have, this is amazing, Celia of your first beta version of EQ, I still play the scenarios through in my head, the exact things. And I'll be like, oh, okay, this is why I shouldn't be reacting like this. And I only nice. played it once, exactly. And this was how long ago? This was two, two and a half years ago. Yeah. I, I still have the face of the characters. I can remember exactly the questions and wanting to get it right. And so it did have a massive impact. And a lot has happened since then, Celia. So, yeah. and... So I can imagine if you start people at a younger age, let's say getting into, you know, out of middle school, that sort of ninth grade, 14, 15, 16, and you normalize it within the school environment and, you know, you and your programmers start creating these worlds that are infinite nearly, or they are expanded with the help of a user base. This is kind of like you're creating... Yeah, you're creating the optimal mental health situation for people to be able to deal with life. And by doing that, you're ineffectively changing the world from inside, from inside everyone's mind, right? Uh, so this woman, Rebecca, that I spoke to at MIT, like she works with this group, Opera of the Future, and they invent all these like massively amazing technologies and they're working on, you know, how the way Alexa talks and how people talk to Alexa. And in the future, Alexa will purely from what you're asking her be able to, I mean, it's not going to be Alexa. It'll be some next generation. From your voice and from what you're asking, it will be able to sink into this. This is why I was asking you about online counselors to a database of, I mean, because these things will know you. If you get them at a, a kid at 14 and it knows you up until you're 30 it it's it sort of has a it has a database of your life of your triggers and it's this sort of i mean it's like how in space odyssey i mean have you ever seen whatever that's space odyssey 2001 this computer that knows everything about you and we are in a way getting there yeah. but at the moment it's a commercial incentivization right so this whole facebook thing you yeah. know where they are literally promoting conflict and controversy because that's the stuff that people want to see and click on that gets them the most ads and merely a little bit of a tweak of their algorithm could have massive repercussions and so this is what i was going to say Celia, when you're saying you're working on the stickiness of your game the way people or human beings respond to Facebook and Instagram and likes, is that what you're talking about in terms of stickiness, touching those, or is that also addiction? 
I was going to ask um, you, like, when, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, when, when you were explaining the, the voice command um, or the, the new version Alex or something, I was, yeah. I was like a little bit yeah. because I, I think that there's a lot of power in, in that data that could easily use the wrong way. So what, one of the things that Facebook does is that if they recognize that someone might be struggling with mental illness, they're much more susceptible to ads and you get bombarded with a, a very different type of advertising that you're less able to withstand than wow. um, people who aren't right. So for example, if you're having a bad day and they're, Oh, this is the best time from our algorithm to be able to sell them a gin and tonic for self-medicating. Right. And uh, this is yeah. you know something that, it could really go the wrong way. Um, Dangerous. Yeah. I'm, I'm not unworried about that. And, you know, the people also that are writing the algorithms, they bring in their own biases and things like that. And they haven't had usually the training, the ethical training to understand what implications that has and so on and so forth. So that is something I'm not necessarily looking forward to. And yeah. there might be a, a different class of people again, like there is in Silicon Valley, like all the kids from the big tech moguls, they don't have any digital products that they no. can play with yeah. like, and things like that, right? And you're using a vulnerable, undereducated population to, you know, pollute and um, and sell to and, you know... Um, Anyway, so that, that needs to, to exploit. be Whereas, exploit. Yeah, that word. should be the biggest alarm bell that there is, is that all of the children of the executives of these companies yes. don't have any of the technology in front of them. Yes. But So that's something to think about. I was going to ask you about, you mentioned Beirut. What's the connection there with EQ? So um, our uh, head of content, who's also a psychologist, she lives in Beirut. Amazing. Yeah. So she's the one that comes up with the stories um, is that right? Not, no, um, she she does our, our blogs. She does a lot of the research. Um, she wrote a lot of the exp, um, explanations for the psychological skills. So, for example, what yeah. generalization is. Um, but she didn't write the actual stories or, or the content of, of the game. So um, it, it's a little mixed, but mostly from a psychological and less from a creative side. Yeah. Who did the who wrote the stories? You did. Um, no, uh, the, the first version of the of um, the game, yes, that was me uh, with some other psychologists. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, like the feedback we got was like, oh, they're so cheesy. So apparently I'm the queen of cheese um, and I have now uh, stepped down <laughs> and um, <laughs> given it to Ari Kaplan, who's a, a proper professional writer and he's written for like Marvel and DC Comics and yeah. a myriad of other products. So he knows how to write without you know being too cheesy <laughs> is he based in los angeles he's based in new york yeah and los yeah. angeles is the gaming angle um, that's where was, our our first game was developed in new york and now we are doing a mix of in-house and a game development company in finland called my tail so oh, wow um, yeah so and and our lead developer is uh, a woman in kenya so we no are way really, amazing yes yes i am all I'm continents so thrilled. yes exactly we just need someone in new zealand now <laughs> yeah well now you got a big fan here in new zealand so oh, i reckon this this woman yeah i mean i'm gonna see if i can connect you to lisa mclennan she is absolutely fantastic and it's got such good energy and is clever um, who knows? I, I see in the future, I do see some New Zealand collaboration coming along or us mm. at least testing some of your new ideas. Um, that sounds wonderful. I think, are you going to be, oh yeah, I was going to bring it back to the PhD. Are you going to finish that or do you, do you not really even have to anymore, Celia? I think you've already done what you wanted to with it. I think it would be have, kind of a cool thing for you to say, oh, I don't need it, actually. Have, have you heard of the sunken cost fallacy? No, so what's that? It is, it is a cognitive bias where you have already sunken so much effort, cost, money, whatever, into something that even if it doesn't make sense, you're still going to finish it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. What's the, like, what would be another analogy for that? Um, 
so building a house like, maybe building a house on a bad ground and like yeah you know that there's water in the cellar and there's sand on the foundation and it's riddled with crocodiles but you're like i'm gonna build this house and if it costs me my last uh cent um, okay so, so can i say something <laughs> so when you're building a house your aim is to build something that's going to keep you dry obviously and where you can live yeah when you were motivated to do this PhD, you were super intrigued about the applications of the internet and data processing and apps on influencing mental health. And your ultimate goal was wanting to build something and have a pragmatic solution. You've done that now, right? So you've built the house. All you're, the, it's like yes. lip service almost. All you're doing is, is you know, paying your respects yeah. to LMU, right? It's not like you spent yes, hundreds yes of thousands no. of dollars of your own money on your PhD. Um, well, if, if you consider time spent on it, you probably like if I was um, fairly, um, you know, paid for my work and not having paying myself on a terrible startup um, uh, salary. But, <laughs> you know, um, so I this is this long, sad story, but I actually in February was a week away from my defense. I had handed it in. My first professor gave me a um, summa cum laude, and then yeah. for political reasons that makes like all the professors at UCL just shake their heads sadly. My second supervisor said that something that would n normally be just mentioned in limitations led him to reject one of the papers in the um, PhD in my thesis, and I need to replicate that. So that. What? put me back like two years and so much politics it's politics it, it's wow i mean everybody was just flabbergasted a week away from my defense and now i said I'm unbelievable that and if it kills me and i know that is not a mentally healthy mindset but <laughs> i have accepted my limitations <laughs> yeah and, yeah i i'm gonna i'm gonna hopefully you know, by end of year, I can um, hand it in again and then early next year do my defense and then be able to. Like, that's, it's, that's not uncommon either, though, to get your defense shot down in the first. Uh, that was your first. I know it's super frustrating, yes. but so it's actually I sometimes I actually like to hear that. I don't like what it did to you, obviously, emotionally, but, but like that for me is what it's supposed to be like and i think german universities are a lot more stringent and a lot more um the way universities are because i mean a phd is something really special right and it shouldn't yes. be something that's just handed out willy-nilly to someone so in that sense as much as it sucks it's actually respect yeah. to yeah anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> before, you're like yeah whatever chris yeah. Um, Bye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this EQ Next Generation is something I can find on the App Store if I go on there. Is that you know right? What? I'm going to send you um, a link so you can play it for free for seven weeks. And if you really okay. like it, I'll give you, I'll unlock the rest of the game for you. Um, it's very different from the first version. Um, I would love to hear your um, your how you find it and what you what you think about it. So um, yeah. I'll send it after this call and. Yeah. Um, let me know awesome. what you think. Is it, um, so it's still a beta, basically? No, no, or it's no, a... no. It's, it's out in the app stores. We have a couple of thousand downloads um, with the new version already. And, awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's out there. Did you do it like the first one where you only launched it in Australia and New Zealand, or did you do it worldwide? Um, this time we did it with internal beta groups instead of countrywide. What does that so, mean, internal no. beta groups? which means that we have so many people who are beta testers from our first version of the game that we didn't have to roll it out in it ah. the first time. Amazing. And now it's unrestricted. It's available everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. You can go down and download it straight away and have, have a look at it, but there's going to be a paywall after a free week. And yep. um, for that, I'll send you the code. Okay. So, but for everyone else, what is the, What's the payment? Well, that um, must be so, so difficult to work out. Um, yeah, we, we want to make it absolutely available. So um, it's going to cost for one year less than um, a therapy session would cost. Um, yeah. So $39.99 um, for the whole product if you 
buy it um, as one, as one product as, for the whole year. And yeah. otherwise you can pay $4.99 a month subscription model and can cancel anytime. Wow. So I think in, I mean, I'll have, I'll talk to Lisa about this because she knows, yeah. but like in terms of people here in New Zealand, if you want counseling, the government, if you are earning under a certain amount, will put, give you money towards counseling. Yeah. And I wonder if something like this yeah. would qualify for that. That would be actually a very, and I'll get back to you and tell you, I want, do you know what it's like in England? Is that something that you've yes. approached the, yeah, it is we're, something we're, that gets subsidized. Um, yeah, so we're the um, only game in the NHS app library, and we are now in wow. with a, a large company that um, is part of the NHS that wants to put us automatically in front of everybody who's on a wait list, so that when you're waiting, you automatically um, get access to EQ for free, so that you can already start treatment. Um, before oh, you be, because amazing. it's anywhere between six and eight weeks before your initial assessment, and then another six to eight weeks before you have your first treatment. And in yeah, that course. time, things can really so yourself. Amazing. So I was actually the minute you said wait list, I thought of waiting room when you like go and see your psychologist or your psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> you have to sit in the waiting room. I was like, how cool would it be if you walk up, you sign in, and they're like, oh yeah, you need to get this app while you're waiting. Why don't you just play this app? Anyway, that's the genius marketing idea right there. So, yeah, um, I'm super aware of the time. I said it was only going to be an hour, but I um, was wondering if in the future we could have you back again. I'm sure of there's going to be some always. people. Awesome. I, I would love to also hear a little bit more of what you do. So, um, I mean, <laughs> I love talking about myself and my baby, obviously. This but a, um... I know. <laughs> uh, so this is what I was going to say. Um and you're my third psychologist I've interviewed. And every time I start, I'm like, I'm not going to let them flip this. I'm not going to let them flip this. <laughs> like, I just end up, last time I was like, there, I'm like 10 minutes later, I've just been talking and talking. And then this happened. And then, yeah, I didn't have a very good relationship. And then I was realizing, like, oh, you're on being recorded at the moment, Chris. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll have the next one will be more about me, me, me. Okay, Definitely. Good. But um, can we... Give a big shout out to your two little twins. What are they? What's the gender? Um, Aria, the girl, and Balthazar, the boy. Aww. And how old are they now? 14 months. Amazing. 14 yeah. month twins. And you managed to come on bit. here. Incredible. And shout out to your partner as well for letting you. you do this. Big time. <laughs> and yeah, EQ and everything. I'll put all the links in there and get everyone to get in there and I'm going to give you some feedback as well and then I've done both of your both of your babies I was going to say you've got triplets yes no qu quadruplet quadruplets now <laughs> with the two <laughs> anyway good um, luck and so maybe next time we talk I can introduce you as Dr. Litvin who knows oh that would be that would <laughs> be less... awesome that would be awesome okay, nice on my vision board <laughs> can I say quickly before we end this when you said step coin that uh, you know that's the thing that you Sweat I miss. Oh, it is called sweat coin. Okay, yes. sweet. I, okay, that is. At first, I was like, "That's a really bad name," because <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, a sweat coin." It's like okay, now I'm. I was like attributing it to working. Yeah. It's your sweat coin that you get for working, but it's working yeah. out, isn't it? Yes. Fitness. Yes. Yes. Anyway, brilliant. Thank you so much. So yeah, Thank many you, hugs to London, and we'll talk again yeah. soon. And good awesome. night. Yeah, exactly. Good morning, good evening, and good night. Yes. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining The Word on episode number five with Celia Lutvin. I think you can agree that she was an incredibly interesting guest and we will look forward to having her on again in the near future. And who knows, her company PsychApps could do some good in New Zealand as well. So I'm going to try and hook her up with a previous guest of mine, Lisa McLennan, to see if there's some potential for collaboration there. Um, please join me for my next guest, which is Natalie Kiriako. 
from Melbourne, Australia. Natalie is a CEO and founder of a company called My Green World, which is a company that's specifically aimed at highlighting biodiversity issues in the world. It's an educational online platform specifically designed for children to help them learn about biodiversity, climate change, and what they can do in a proactive sense to try and curb it. Natalie is an amazing woman. She is the recipient of the Order of the Australian Merit, or the Australian Order of Merit, sorry. And yeah, super look forward to doing that interview. Until then, thanks so much for tuning in, and don't forget to check out my other podcasts on Stop Substack and my Patreon and maybe consider becoming a subscriber in the near future. Thanks heaps. Kia ora. Kapai.